0: I am Esther Almar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM's studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C., We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, our main event conversation, global black hair battles. From the U.S. Appeals Court decision to Hampton University to South Africa's high school protests. Hot topic one, Arizona's new law. If you change a diaper you could be a child molester. And hot topic two, the wage gap between black and white Americans, wider in 2016 than in 1979. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Kathleen Addy and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. Kathleen Addy joins us from Ghana's capital city, Accra. Kathy was Afrobarometer communications manager for seven countries in East and West Africa. Afrobarometer is a research project that measures public attitudes on economic, political, and social matters in sub-Saharan Africa. Kathy is a communications consultant and an activist on issues of gender and good governance. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at the Ohio State University and the inaugural Equity for Women and Girls of Color fellow at Harvard University. Dr. Lindsay joins us from Boston in the United States. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Let's start with our main event discussion, Global Black Hair Battles. Little
1: girl with the press and curl. Age eight, I got a jerry curl. Thirteen and I got a relaxer. I was the source of so much laughter. At Fifteen when it all broke off. Eighteen and I went on natural. February 2002, I went on and did what I had to do. Because it was time to change my life
0: banning employees from having dreadlocks is not a form of racial discrimination said the u.s court of appeal the decision by the 11th u.s circuit court of appeals was the result of a lawsuit brought by the equal employment opportunity commission the eeoc it charged that an alabama insurance claims processing company had discriminated against Chastity Jones, a black woman in 2010 when she applied to work for them. They offered her the job on one condition. The dreadlocks had to go. They didn't fit the company's grooming standard and she was told that they, quote, tend to get messy, unquote. When Chastity Jones refused to change her hair, the company withdrew the job offer the litigators representing the company said its grooming policy was race neutral according to the eeoc quote prohibition of dreadlocks in the workplace constitutes race discrimination because dreadlocks are a manner of wearing the hair that is physiologically and culturally associated with people of african descent unquote federal law bans employment discrimination on the basis of race the court of appeal disagreed Judge Adelberto Jordan, a President Obama appointee who wrote the appellate opinion, said, quote, As far as we can tell, every court to have considered the issue has rejected the argument that Title VII protects hairstyles culturally associated with race, unquote. From Atlanta's appeals court to Hampton University in 2012, the university faced controversy after a news report in which dreadlocks and cornrows for the male students were banned was shown. The policy dated back to 2001. Take a listen. Here at Hampton University, the ban on cornrows and dreadlocks applies to a very specific group of male students enrolled in the five-year MBA program.
1: Well, it has been a target of controversy for years, and despite the complaints, the dean of the business school says that the ban has actually helped his students land jobs.
2: All we're trying to do is make sure our students get into the job. What they do after that, that's you know, their business. And I say to myself, well, when was it that cornrows and dreadlocks were part of
0: African-American history? Charles Drew didn't wear, Muhammad Ali didn't wear, Martin Luther King didn't wear. From the U.S. Court of Appeals and Hampton University to South Africa, black South African schoolgirls in Pretoria High School have been protesting for their right to wear their natural hair in school and to speak their Southern African languages. They say Their school policy rejects their natural hair and tells them not to speak African languages at school. The schoolgirls' protests went global as they hit the streets, confronted school's authority, and explained on camera they had had enough. Take a listen.
1: I had recently cut my hair, so it was a small afro, and I was repeatedly pulled out of class by one of the members of staff, pulled my hair incorrect. Said my hair was untidy, um, not fit for school, and once threatened to cut my hair with scissors. Black girls are repeatedly pulled out of class for having untidy hair when their hair is natural, for their hair being incorrect, are constantly met with snide remarks from teachers like their hair needs to be tamed. They tell me no, we don't want you to be in an afro. We don't want this on you. We don't want that on you. Don't speak this language. It's like well, What am I supposed to do? Because this is my hair. I don't want to relax it. I want the
3: natural. And I can't tie it the way you want me to tie it because it's impossible. Not only that, it's painful to do that. The rules were that if you have an upper, it needs to be flat but them suggesting that your afro needs to be flat, it means that you must apply a certain chemical on your hair, which dam- which causes great damage to some of our scalps. So what we- but they were basically suggesting, in order to look part of the uniform, you need to look as white as possible.
0: A petition supporting the girls gathered more than 20,000 signatures. On social media, the hashtag Stop Racism at Pretoria High School prompted global conversation about natural hair and the school policy. Students said movements like Black Lives Matter had empowered them to take a public stance. One student was clear about what the school needs to do more to move forward.
1: The first thing that I would want my school to do is to open some type of dialogue where we as students are able to discuss, you know, what our problems are with not just about hair, but also about, you know, pertaining to blackness as a whole, being able to feel like your culture is valued in your school system.
0: Pretoria High School was all white during apartheid. Of course, apartheid politically ended in 1994. 22 years after black South Africans lined up for hours in the hot sun to cast a vote that declared them citizens of that nation, schoolgirls now fight to have their Africanness be accepted in places of education. And the issue spoke to a post-apartheid South Africa, the notion of a rainbow nation, but one where blackness was being erased. Let's talk global black hair battles. Kathleen Addy, let me start with you, your thoughts.
4: Every time one of these stories pop up, I get surprised because I would have thought that we've come a long way. Right here in Ghana and in most African countries, we still carry the colonial baggage of hairstyling and appearance norms. So for instance, in many Ghanaian schools as well, um, black normal Ghanaian kids, black kids with black hair, are expected to have short hair they are not allowed, it's not allowed for their hair to grow very long. But if you are mixed race or Caucasian, then you are excused from that directive. So if you're mixed race or Caucasian, it's okay for your hair to grow very long. If you're an African child, a Ghanaian child, then you have to keep your hair short. This is all, you know, extending our, this part of our colonial baggage and an extension of colonial systems. I don't think that anybody's actually sat down to Think about why a rule like that is necessary. A rule that says that kids who are dark-skinned and have kinky hair must have a certain particular length of hair, and then other kids with different colored skins and different textured hair can have another set of rules. Same with churches. In my church, I found out, which is a Catholic church, that it was not allowed to join the choir if your hair was not straightened, meaning if you had braids if you had any kind of natural kinky Afro thing going, you could not join the choir. The last I checked, they said that that that, that rule had been scrapped. But that rule extended right until just a couple of years ago. The other thing you find is with workplaces, especially banks, they'll say the dress code is to appear neat and tidy. Now, when they go on to explain what neat and tidy is, they'll say that your hair must be held down, must be flat, must be, you know, in cornrows, and even in places where those rules have been scrapped, the norms, the way, the practice, the accepted culture of most corporate places is such that you cannot wear your hair in its most natural African state. So it permeates to our society. When it comes to weddings, I know people who... Uh, have natural hair. When it's time to have a wedding they are told that they need to wear a weave, for instance, in you know order for the wedding pictures to be nice. <laughs> when I wear my hair natural and in and in, in, in lots. When I had uh when I when I had a how do you call it, a traditional wedding a couple of years ago, a lot of people said, Oh, but you have to, you know, flatten your hair and wear a wig You know. So it goes to a society, and it's just this colonial baggage. I don't think that, personally don't think that people go out of their way, and I'm talking in the Ghanaian context, so of course the background is different. I don't think people go out of their way to make a rule that says we want to oppress black people. It's just a continuation of something that existed at a particular point in time, and the fact that we haven't re-examined, we haven't started to re-examine all these rules and what value they bring to our lives what is the value in a girl's one-inch length of hair or two-inch length of hair or three-inch length of hair, a girl in a primary school or a secondary school? It should not make any difference. So Mm -hmm. it's the colonial baggage that is, you know, we've carried it over, and we have this, we are blinded. We don't see how it's a problem because we have not sat down to re-examine what that colonial baggage is, what it's done to us, how it continues to influence us, how it continues to determine how we view the world, our worldview. So obviously I think that we need to have the conversation about hair at all levels of society. And and we need to have the rules changed.
0: Doctor Trevor B. Lindsay, your thoughts?
1: I think that there's both the examples that you gave are so potent and, and, and interesting, right? We're talking about this globally. But the Hampton incident is so fascinating to me because it is a historically black institution that is implementing this. So thinking about the internalization of these ideas of black hair Mm -hmm. in its natural state or in locks or cornrows Mm -hmm. being unkept, unclean, the idea of grooming and tidiness, all of this racially coded language and has a particular Mm -hmm. impact. in Hampton is fascinating because it's for men specifically that's doing, and often when we see these things, it's about policing the hair, body, blackness Mm -hmm. of black Mm -hmm. girls, and so we always see the ways that anti-blackness shows up in these gendered ways, that the way Mm anti-blackness works on a global level is through policing gender identity, gender performance, that is very much so about racialized identity, too, so it's at this intersection that we see these tensions, and it's shocks me still of course that we're having this conversation but at the same time the fact that we're having these conversations in places where we're talking about a legacy of colonialism we're talking about a legacy of slavery we're talking about the broad global nature of white supremacy we Mm -hmm. should be unsurprised in in our framing of this
0: what's powerful for me is the extent to which your follicles your scalp continues to be this landscape where white supremacy plays out its um, its specific issues with blackness and, and color. And so whether we are in a school, high school in South Africa, in a historically black college or university like Hampton University, In a school in in Ghana, whether it's the legacy of colonialism, the legacy of enslavement or the legacy of apartheid, the manifestation of those legacies all mirror each other. So we see these um, connected histories, even when we think we have disconnected selves. And what is amazing and powerful to me is the idea that this kind of coded language. So we hear terms like flattening or you know, wear it, you you hear the young girls talk about, neatness, they would tell us, neatness. wear it close to your scalp, wear it pressed down. And you hear these young girls said, not only can my hair not do that, it is actually painful. And I think about the idea of young girls, but of course in Hampton as well, but with the young girls being asked to contort themselves, contort their hair. In ways that are designed to appease white supremacy, when we know that there is nothing, that there is nothing, there is no amount of changing, shifting, bending, bowing or contortion that ever satisfies white supremacy. Because ultimately, it's the idea of trying to consistently make the blackness in whatever form it naturally exists Mm -hmm. wrong bad, unclean, unkempt, dirty, unacceptable. And in doing that with the hair, it then goes into your spirit, into your system. We talked about young girls saying that the idea that the mere fact of you is unacceptable, unpalatable and unwelcome in this space. And this in a name, you're talking about two sets of differences. You're talking about nations where the where black People are the majority in South Africa. Caddy's talking about incidents in in Ghana. I remember when um, I'm talking to you from Accra, Ghana, and I remember when Mm -hmm. my father was being buried, God rest his soul. Um This is being recorded on September 21st, which is my father's birthday. It's also Ghana's first president's birthday, and it's Ghana's founder's day. And so my father's been dead 10 years now. And when I came home, I had my hair in just kinky twists. And I remember there was an actual family meeting about my hair. <laughs> there was an actual gather round the table conversation mm-hmm. about the way my hair mm-hmm. would be because I had to read Um, something in the church in front of a whole group of people. Mm -hmm. My father served Mm -hmm. in Kwame Nkrumah's government. So there would be cameras there. And so this idea that I would present in this natural state, never mind that I'm grieving, Mm -hmm. grieving as his third child. (laughs) The issue is, why won't I get my hair relaxed? Why won't I better still wear Mm -hmm. a weave or a wig. And my refusal to do Mm -hmm. that becoming this point Mm -hmm. of discussion so that that anti-blackness manifests in how we deal with each other, as well as how um white supremacy continues to um, deal with us so i wonder from the two of you if you can imagine what would it take for this to no longer be the ongoing discussion that it is because it seems wherever in the world you are when it comes to black folk this landscape where hair is a battleground as opposed to a beautiful playground where you get to try styles and do different things that continues to be the discussion what what needs to change in order for that to be a different conversation or even better still no longer a conversation? Kathy let me start with you.
4: Right Um, that's a question what needs to change and I'll give you an anecdote when I was in university several years ago I cut off all my straight hair and started growing my hair natural and then I started twisting it into kinky twists probably like what you had when you came to Ghana a couple of years ago. Um, I got ran into so many problems. I got thrown out of class sometimes. But you know what was interesting? The problems became more pronounced when when the authorities, the teachers, the students realized that I am Ghanaian. At the time, it was acceptable if it was an African-American or a foreign black person to have unusual hair. But the idea that a Ghanaian woman or a Ghanaian lady who is educated, who is in the formal Chinese, who also have this kind of hair that is associated with so many negative things, was a problem for a lot of people. And I thought it was interesting because they didn't have a problem with other kinds of black people who are not Ghanaians with that kind of hair, but they had a problem with me being a Ghanaian person with that kind of hair. We've come some way from that. And in Ghana, we're at a point where different, wearing your, your hair differently, different manifestations of black hair is slightly more accepted than, way, than that time, that, at that time when I was in university. I just feel like we need to have a conscious conversation, a conversation that does not just come up when issues come up, but a conversation that is structured for us to really look at for why we accept the standards that we accept. And it's not just hair; it's about bodies, it's about curves, it's about shades of blackness. Why we have accepted what is right in quotes to be right, and why we are unwilling to consider other. So for me, that kind of conversation will be important. There's a need to relook really at it. a lot of books with rules, you know, have been carried over from a really long time ago, and nobody has bothered. You know, you'll be amazed at the kinds of laws that we still have on our books until just a few years ago um, it was still perfectly legal for a man to rape his wife, for instance. You know, so we still have... And that's a carryover from um, all of our colonial heritage because we inherited the law, the, uh, the English law, you know, as part of our package. <laughs> you know, so for me, a conversation needs to be had very consciously Secondly, we need to um, go back into all of these spaces where these rules are written out, even vaguely, and and do a questioning. Why? What is a definition of neatness, for instance? Because most schools will say neat. They use the word neat, but it's coded because neat means very short hair, almost to your scalp. You know. Even recently, just a couple, just a couple of months ago, my daughter, who is in um, junior high school was asked to cut off her hair. Her hair was about an inch and a half thick and long. She was asked to cut it off or, or, or not come to class. She wasn't allowed to come to class with hair that is longer than just half an inch. Now this whole thing about somebody wanting to be to style their hair this way or their natural hair this way or that way, that is also a problem. Comes to another thing that is in our culture which is about Authority and asserting authority over others. So, of course, you know that here, discipline and um, authority of the elder is something that's huge on this in this in this part of the world. I mean, an older person is not supposed to be questioned. The the rule, the, the words of an older person is supposed to be law. You know. And so all of there's a whole lot that needs to be done that we need to consciously do because it's not gonna happen automatically. At least it will not happen fast enough. So for me some real programming around why we accept the things we accept. Why we will not change the rules that we've carried over all this baggage will be useful and helpful.
0: True Lindsay.
4: I think of the work of someone like a Doctor
1: Yaba Blay who did the work around Pretty Period and has done incredible work around the impact and lasting effects of global white supremacy in terms of bringing attention not only to the large range of beauty that is present in our hair, our skin color, um, our body types across this broad range and really bringing that to the forefront and calling out these beauty ideals as problematic, um, not only for black folks, but entirely problematic as a whole that we're unable to see the humanity of people if we're blocked by these very narrow notions of what beauty is, what ideal is, what professional is. And also her work when there was a little girl who was told that she couldn't have locks at her elementary school a couple years ago and doing this locks of love with all of these amazing black women who were showing pictures and writing love letters to Um, this young black girl to affirm her and also causing this national outcry around this idea of policing black girls' bodies. I mean, this comes back down to the policing and surveying of black bodies across the globe. And I think that, calling that out as part of that project so that we're not saying this is something frivolous or something that is in the realm of minor. This is part of anti-blackness, and we need to name it as such. Mm -hmm. And we need to be Mm -hmm. deliberate and intentional in naming it as Mm anti-blackness because how we feel about ourselves, how we see ourselves, and then how the Mm -hmm. world sees us is so important in terms of outcomes, whether we're talking about state violence or we're talking about outcomes in classrooms, if we're talking about In South Africa, the example in Pretoria, these girls not being able to use their own languages, so consciousness is being impacted by this. This is meaningful, Mm -hmm. political, and significant. And so naming this as anti-blackness and saying that there is a cultural component that has political implications, that has economic and social implications, is, I think, a framing that we have to be committed to in terms of undoing these policies and challenging such egregious laws, bills company standards to say, are you committed to being anti-black? Because that's what these decisions read as. That's what these policies read as. That's what these cultural expectations and norms read as, even among our own families, really calling that out and naming it. And when we name those things mm-hmm. as anti-black or white supremacists, I think we get farther along in the process of pushing the conversation forward.
0: Well, these young women have had enough. That was our main event discussion. Listening to The Spin, a one hour weekly all women of color media panel. I'm your host, Esther Arma. Our contributors this week are Kathleen Addy and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. This spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM's studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the US in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos on WFM 91.7. And we are online via podcast. If
5: you don't like that, we have nothing to lose, post it with the way cap and the cops want to
2: Corruption is still election, brutality, I'm gonna we'll get option. Make you sit, make you chop some. It's been a minute since me and your reason where we laugh some. You they got it down, we'll be keeping The chat scale is a low, send a an Watching us off a dance, we thought we would never grow up. By the fire side, mommy don't was so hot. But now nah, it was hotter than Uncle George Lane's. Chechekuli, Che Chick of Freeza drove us insane. Charlie, you didn't care Italian like they did in the goal. River Jamila score, dancing with a flagpole. hole. But yet, yet, yeah, you think I send a 92. Ghana than I records is here to keep our used to you. Oh, Charlie, the cell phones so from back in the day. When we tell me, I have one. send. America say, well some things change and some might not. But when they reminisce over so you, my God,
5: huh. I said, you
2: don't forget like it you, you don't forget what you, you so got. Look how we all can grow Secondary school time, cat's be small Me, I go move down where you learn and survive Got Garri and That was the ish that kept us all alive But where'd you? They cry, the a nightclub for Osu You shot a fine fine gold where they bounce you So you go change your clothes, come back, they let you on Just to realize you should've stayed your ass at home Cause the London boys, they here, the Yankee guys, stay there They like the beast the mingle, and you were all alone, Charlie These are the days who were fam never missed us From Boushke, the wood mines to super soul sister But I gotta say, looking back in the day Nobody shook a crap, like a copper go bay, cause some things change and some might not. But when they reminisce over you, my god, what? Ha. I see so so Police where corruption, steal election, brutality. my brother look at option. That's you why you don't forget what you're
0: Topic time, let's start with Arizona's new law. If you change a baby's diaper, a baby's nappy, or bathe that child, you could be convicted of child molestation, thanks to a new state law in Arizona. The Arizona Supreme Court has interpreted that state law so that it criminalizes any contact between an adult and a child's genitals. According to the court, the law, which is supposed to protect children, includes innocent conduct like changing a diaper or bathing a baby. In a stinging dissent, one justice wrote, and I quote, parents and other caregivers in the state are now considered to be child molesters or sex abusers under Arizona law, unquote. Those convicted under the statute may be imprisoned for five years. If a parent were caught up via this law, they would have to prove their innocence as opposed to the state having to prove their guilt, which is usually the way the law works in the United States. The Supreme Court majority argued that if prosecutors did charge parents, the latter could argue they were exercising their, quote, fundamental constitutional right to manage and care for their child, unquote. But because Arizona sentencing laws are strict and state courts are unwilling To dismiss sex charges based on a constitutional challenge, what will happen is parents might have to sit in prison for some time before a higher court vacates their sentence on constitutional grounds. According to an article by Joseph Stern in Slate magazine, quote, Arizona's child molestation laws have been weaponized into a tool for prosecutorial harassment, allowing the state to target any parent or caregiver out of spite or malice or simply to boost their conviction rates. This terrible decision has gutted constitutional rights and turned many of the state's residents into unknowing criminals, unquote. In a society where convicted rapists like Stanford student Brock Turner only serve three months of a six-month sentence for raping an unconscious woman. In one where statistics reveal just how challenging and traumatic it is to litigate child sexual abuse or sexual assault or rape cases, Arizona's Supreme Court decision does little to remedy judicial issues or sentencing disparities. Instead, it criminalizes normalcy and throws its hands in the air. Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay, your thoughts. Oh,
1: I read this and I just... I. I thought this was a joke. <laughs> I was so shocked, and I know it's not. There are such grave outcomes that could come from that. Everything from criminalizing parents, and in a state like Arizona, I wouldn't be surprised if those, those criminalized fell along certain racial and class lines, right? This becomes a way to further have a surveillance state in terms of the engagement of families with this and does nothing to actually prevent violence in intimate spaces and deal with the real issue of those harming children. It's at the same time, it's like we're trying to protect, but really we're not. We're really trying to symbolize and put more bodies into prisons and jails and to put more people into the criminal justice system. Because the fact that you have to go on an affirmative defense and say, no, I'm just parenting if you were brought up on such charges means you're going to have to hire a lawyer. There are going to be court fees so who again is disparately impacted by the fact that this goes into effect and by the fact that these are not these are not efforts to actually pass laws to protect children that we still actually need legislation that better protects children in cases of sexual violence than any other state that has laws that of course are trying to navigate this and to prevent child violence has always had with sexual intent that's part of the statute that's part of the law the removal of that from this particular framing simply means that by doing your job as a parent or a caregiver you could in fact end up in jail and having to move through the criminal justice system and those who are marked in the racial system uh, in this system as vulnerable and precarious, i.e. racial minorities, undocumented people, um, people with criminal records, ex offenders, racial minorities, will be unfairly targeted. I can already foresee this. And we are talking about Arizona here. Arizona has had a number of pieces of legislation with questionable and outright bias and racist implications and outcomes for communities. And I think we have to be very vigilant again in pushing back against such an egregious law that does nothing to protect children and
4: only lines the pockets of those invested in for-profit prisons.
0: Kathleen Addy, your thoughts?
4: Well, when when I I, I heard that, I I thought this was so bizarre, so bizarre. So I Googled the Arizona Supreme Court to find out who was actually on that court. There are four men and one white woman. And so I'm thinking, four white men have no clue what they're going about. I didn't go into um, who said what, so maybe that's not a fair comment. But I thought that was interesting—the—the—the racial makeup of the court. Now, in terms of the substance of the issue, I think that this is obviously a blunt instrument, which you know is like smashing a fly with a hammer. I'm not disputing that there could be a problem along those lines. It's it's possible for a caregiver to abuse a child. But considering that that will be in the minority and the fact that caregiving is something that happens as part of our existence, you would think that the law will be structured in such a way that it takes account of the fact that this, um, this problem will be happening in the context of a minority of caregivers but rather seeks to um, criminalize the entire class of caregivers, of course, that is not not right. Now, once somebody is slapped with these kinds of charges, what do they have to do? They have to pay for legal services to go through the system. Now, we know the people who will be able to afford to go through the legal system, and we know those who will not. So this, in actual fact, will end up hurting the poor disproportionately more than it will hurt the wealthy. Now, who are the poor? Of course, we know that the poor are minorities, who are um, black people, Hispanic people, other kinds of minorities overrepresent in the category of poor. So, I, I hesitate to make an assumption that this is deliberate. This is something that is deliberately setting out to hurt the poor, or to help racial minorities. I will not go as far as to say it's deliberate but I do not know. But certainly there must be a way of undoing um this 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 law. It's it's unfair and it's totally unfortunate.
0: What is interesting to me is that in the midst of a growing conversation about just how crazy the incarceration rates are in the United States. In the midst of a conversation about decriminalizing nonviolent offenses, about not putting poor people in jail because they can't afford bail, which is how somebody like Khalif Browder ended up horrifically committing suicide because he couldn't afford, his family couldn't afford the bail after he was accused of stealing a backpack. So in the midst of a conversation that critiques incarceration, there is a law that will make it easier to incarcerate and put the burden of proof back on those parents who will then be forced to literally do what even the government is saying they want to see stopped. And so it's really interesting to me. It reminds me of going back to the abolition of slavery. This is a point that Manifa Bandele always makes. The abolition of slavery happens and then you have reconstruction and then you have An immediate backlash against something that is about the progress of something that is categorically unjust, unfair and about inequity, one that criminalizes and penalizes um, the poor, black and brown people. And does so in a way that isn't just punitive, but is devastating in terms of what happens to families, which is what we see in again and again. With the war on drugs, you saw the same thing. It's the decimation and the devastation of poor families. And we know through the statistics that when incarceration happens to poor families, there's a ripple effect where it impacts housing and schooling and employment. And so the breakup of that family is like this weapon as a result of the way in which the law treats what is a really serious issue. As Dr. Treva Lindsay says, we need real legislation to deal with intimate violence, to deal with the sexual violence against children. And all the statistics say that the law is a poor weapon in actually protecting children. So it's infuriating, actually, that given the reality of the issue that Arizona Supreme Court's response is to simply criminalize the most natural act, the act of parenting a child. And the reason why it's infuriating is the idea that there is recognition that protection is required. But you don't do the work of interrogating how to effectively use the law in what is always difficult. The law is an instrument in protecting children is a blunt one. It's a difficult one. And it's often unwieldy. So there is not the necessary careful interrogation to look at how to make it a more effective, impactful weapon. There's simply this broad brush. To me, it's almost dismissive. Let's just catch everybody. And then those who are innocent will have to figure it out. But those who are innocent are going to get caught again in a system that will penalize them. And then it's the idea of the plea bargain system. If you take a plea in order to avoid what are horrific legal costs, then that impacts your record. And so what started off was an absolute case of innocence, then turns you into a criminal on the basis of where your um poverty levels stand. And way you pass this out and break this down, for me it is it is just outrageous. And I'm shocked. You now the trouble with the Supreme Court that there's no other place to then go and appeal it again. That's the final decision. So now the people are left and the lawyers are left and the public defenders are left and uh, regular ordinary folk are left to deal with the consequences of this stupidity. And as Kathleen says, when you look at the makeup of the law, these are never the people who are going to deal with the consequences of their judgments. It's never their lives that are going to be impacted, wrecked, frankly, potentially. Um, It's never them. And so because it's not, you make a ruling that ignores the devastating consequences of your words, your language, and frankly, for me, your ignorance, really just your ignorance.
5: Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. for your right Get up, stand up Stand up for your right Get up, stand up Don't give up the fight Preacher, man, don't tell me Heaven is on the earth I know you don't know What life is really worth It's an all that Peter is going
0: Another Hot Topic 2. The wage gap between white and black Americans is worse today in 2016 than it was in 1979, according to a new report. The report by the Economic Policy Institute, known as the EPI, revealed that the gap between wages of both black and white men and black and white women has widened over the last 36 years. Let's look at some numbers. Black men's average hourly wages went from being 22% lower than those of white men in 1979 to being 31% lower by 2015. For women, the wage gap went from 6% in 1979 to 19% in 2015. The EPI report comes a week after the U.S. Census Bureau found that in 2015, median income for white Americans went up 4.4% and that of black Americans went up by 4.1%. So while everyone's income went up in 2015, a large racial divide remains. According to an article in The Guardian, the EPI report was especially bad for black women, especially those who were young. The researchers found that the current wave of inequality has hit young black women the hardest. Since 2000, when the gap began widening, it's black women just entering the workforce who have seen their wages fall the furthest compared with their white peers. Valerie Wilson, one of the report's authors and the director of the EPI's program on race, ethnicity, and the economy, said, and I quote The finding that stands out the most, our major result, is that the racial wage gaps were larger in 2015 than they were in 1979. That's huge, because the impression people have in general is we know there's still racism in this country, but we think or at least believe that it's getting better, unquote. Really? People think it's getting better. This, as the United States and frankly the world, mourns the killing of unarmed black man Terence Crutcher, whose SUV broke down in the middle of the street and he asked for help And a 13-year-old black boy called um, Tyree King, both unarmed, both shot, both black and both killed by the police. And this, as we then get news that Corinne Gaines, another young black woman, black mother with her child who was shot and killed by police, also unarmed while in her home. And people think things are getting better. Really? Really? Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, let me start with you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm with you on the really. I mean, <laughs> the statistic is just, there's so many statistics that are floating around right now that just makes my blood boil. We say we rage and the whole damn system is guilty as hell because at every level we're seeing this regression on these, steps of progress that we usually use as markers. We used wealth as a marker. We used that we're no longer enslaved as a marker. Or there's no longer apartheid as a marker. But then reading a statistic like yesterday that 1892 was the most violent year in terms of anti-black violence and lynching on record, and we actually surpassed that number this year with death of black people by police. So there's something really telling about the fact that I can use a statistic from 1892 to talk about 2016. And I think when we talk Mm -hmm. about that just on the level of surviving white supremacy and anti-blackness, that living and thriving under that is even more precarious. So the wage gap is unsurprising. And within the wage gap, again, looking at the gender dynamics of that, we still compare men to men and women to women, which is saying the study is, Starting from the point that women are going to make less than men. I mean, that's one part of this that's just blaring as well. But then in that, who then suffers the most in that system? And of course, it's black women who we see this largest disparity. So our gap between white women, black men, and white men is widening at a rate that should be alarming to everyone. But of course, it's not because black women are the margins of the margins. And so I think... What we're seeing in this moment and why this moment is so important globally in terms of a movement for black lives and bringing up the afterlives of slavery, of colonialism, of apartheid and other forms and iterations of white supremacy is that we are seeing that the ability to survive, live and thrive as black people is compromised by these newer iterations and technologies of anti-blackness. And one of the best ways to do that is to destroy the economic base of a community, um, which is happening, which is destroying kind of health outcomes in communities, which we see with the depletion of health access and affordability of health care and reform. And then on the literal level of survival here, not being able to know if you're going to make it home at night if your car breaks down, or not being able to be a kid out at night playing and get read as a grown man who's now a suspect in an armed robbery, or someone who is picking up their child and meeting in their car and is accosted by police. These are the instances just this week that give us an indication that anti-blackness is functioning at this level of survival. And a statistic like we're hearing out of the wage gap is here is talking about the living and thriving of black people. So if we survive, then we're surviving at these levels, which also reflect disparity, anti-blackness, and white supremacy operating full throttle. So what this tells me is that we're at a full throttle pace with the new technologies of white supremacy and the
4: new systemic challenges of navigating it.
0: Kathleen, Adi, your thoughts?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I totally, totally agree with what Lisa is saying. I mean, to sit here and watch what is going on in the U.S. with black people being gunned down so indiscriminately, the law not being on their side is actually horrifying I'm sure you know, as, as you yourself grew up, we have a huge um, population of people, of Africans in, in, the, in the U.S. who are not part of the diaspora in, in, the, in that sense. They're not African-Americans. They're just Africans who have moved to the U.S. for whatever reason. So what that means is that I have friends, I have schoolmates, I have family, you know, who are black men walking around the U.S. And every time one of these incidents happen, I'm, I say to myself, oh, my God, this could have been this person or that person, and it's it's I, I can't i can't understand why it's going on and why it seems to be getting worse i don 't know whether because media is now globalized, we see these things more often than we would have in the past you know, so it's because of that that we are getting all this information or it's just happening more but on 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 the on the wage issue. There's an angle that is interesting. It's happening right here in Ghana and in most African countries as well. And that is the whole issue of expatriate. So white supremacy is not just happening where white people are a majority. It happens here where white people are a minority as well. Now what tends to happen is that when um, companies get established, they would hire a lot of people who are not Ghanaians or who are not Africans. And they will pay these people several times more than they pay their African staff, even if they are on the same level. So we have expatriates who tend to be white people, mostly who get housed in the most expensive parts of the city for free, whose kids' school fees get paid in expensive schools. We have people who are expatriates who also get, you know, all kinds of benefits that Ghanaians don't get. This is also part of a colonial legacy because there's absolutely no reason why somebody coming from Europe to come and work in Ghana, by virtue of coming from Europe to work in Ghana earns more. Because when people move from Ghana to go and work in Europe or the US, trust me, they are not labeled experts, they're labelled migrants. Economic migrants and other kinds of terms are used for them. And of course those terms do not attract the same the 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 inverse is not true for that for that situation. When black people go out to work elsewhere they probably are paid less. And even if they are not paid less, they are definitely not paid more than other people who live in that um, geographical location. But when you come to Ghana and you go to most West African companies, check the mining companies, check the fast-moving consumer goods companies, check the financial institutions, there is a different way of remuneration for people who have come from Europe or elsewhere and, and are called expatriates. Even though we live in a world where that that, that term is, is, is actually questionable. So yes, it's, it is ridiculous and I agree with what Teresa said that it's a reflection of white supremacy that is now being foisted on us in almost indirect ways. Be it in places where we are a majority or a minority.
0: And this is so powerful to me because I think about the idea of this global anti-blackness and the insidiousness of white supremacy and its legacies infiltrating all these different areas in different ways, even as we persist in these notions of progress and improvement. And so, you know, the idea that you can articulate a narrative of progress In the same week, you are watching a list of fathers and children and women die at the hands of the state who are sworn to serve and protect. And then you can listen to a Ghanaian woman like Kathleen Addy break down and explain that actually being an expatriate, And of course, we know the difference between an expatriate and an immigrant is usually just color, because immigrant really just means black and brown and expatriate really just refers to white. That's how that breaks down. And you're talking about the exact same work being given preferential treatment on the basis of color and the expectation of that by both Africans in Ghana, by Ghanaians and by the white expatriates who come. And so we're reminded again how White supremacy's legacy requires major resistance on all fronts, but also an honest telling of the ways that it manifests and that anti-blackness is not and has never been limited to white people. In these nations that are majority black, we're seeing manifestations of that anti-blackness as well. And so, yes, we rage. We continue to say the entire system, global regional, domestic, national, is guilty as hell. And the fight against white supremacy's toll, its legacy and our inheritance of this notion of black inferiority and white superiority that is a profound lie, but its lived reality manifests in something like the wage gap. It manifests in the narrative that Kathy shares with us. All of those things remind me of... The Not just Aluta Continua, but what are the different ways that we need to fight in order to push back this tidal wave that just feels like a deluge that means and feels like you're consistently drowning, even when you're swimming upstream and insisting that you're right to be, to be black, to live, to breathe, to earn equally, to thrive, to rock your natural, to rock your dreads, even when you insist on all of that. It is a battle that continues to be waged on all these different fronts. Black America is telling white America. Black folk are telling white folk, pay me what you owe me.
3: Pay me what you owe me. Than Just give me your money. Who y'all think y'all for? Like blah, blah, blah Pay me what
0: you want me going.
3: That's
0: your hour Thank you to Kathleen Addy and Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay Thanks ladies Thank you Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you to the spin production team. Sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Alma.
3: No. 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 Universal no. equality, responsibility, policy to survive economically. Ooh. Some people do it comically, of freedom, equality. Invest your money properly, people owe me your politics. Intellectual property, stealing, stealing no. stolen commodity. No. Controlling robbery total lack of camaraderie Clones, copycats bother me Mind all black, just follow sorry. me Honestly, honesty, honesty, All these jokers economy Puppets with no autonomy Yup, it's spooky to find I
2: see you looking But you better take it easy tell your goons They to take it easy Here comes the rocket launch Take it easy Take, take, it, easy. It, it, take it easy You better take it easy much ex-mommy? Take it easy be good with the sex You be like Take it easy Mommy take, take it easy Take it easy You better take it easy yeah. You moving bricks but you better take it easy Here's a tip you I don't tip twice But your best friend He And that dog Sniff in the bag Ain't last seat. And I ain't rhyme In a minute But y'all ain't up. And I ain't blood On your shirt man That's ketchup Picture cleft, Get in the writer to give him help I'd rather kill myself Become a ghost And write for myself Cause oh my I'm God. a top celebrity Top celebrity Top celebrity in the sea I flow for the thugs Gypsies and hippies Shit yeah. get on my scroll With a ant turn to flow Malcolm X come out hit the group club show I see you looking But you better think Get a year tell you Here comes the rocket launcher. Take Take it easy.
5: Take it easy, you better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy.
2: Good with the sex, you'll be like, take it easy.
3: Mommy, take it easy. De- Plus, de- you know originals get plagiarized, majors, minors, my superstars, so, leaders, plumbers get scrutinized, so, placaters, blinded stupid so, guys, wicked people, choose homicides, yeah. drugs in society, heathen and them, blackest, bogus, bleeding, and bleeding. And Negron, uh, Negro no and no them, Negro, Negro, bleeding them, Angelitos, Angelitos Cibera, them, Chico, chicas, I'm bleeding them, fiction, bleeding them, capitalism, bleeding them, misunderstanding, cheating and the oh, ignorance, bleeding them, loyalty is leaving them, got royalty believing them, eyes open deceiving them, reconciling, receiving them, reckless driving, we leaving Matthew and you and Peter, we about to reconcile, wreck and wreck and wreck. We about to about to reconcile This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.